Hi there, it's David here. I just received this email from a lady named Patience. Good morning. This may seem a little odd, but I just wanted to check in and see if you're alright. I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan, slash person who talks about him a little too much, who has been listening to The Eagle and Child every week and has been eagerly looking forward to the next one for a while. I've even started listening to the old ones again in an attempt to curb my impatience. And yes, the irony of that coupled with my name is not lost on me. Anyway, I hope you're doing well, you're doing an amazing job, and I look forward to the next episode of The Eagle and Child. Your affectionate listener, Patience. Well, Patience, thank you for your email. Matt and I are both fine. We have actually been continuing to record. We've actually just about finished up with mere Christianity at this point. Unfortunately, the bottleneck has been me. I haven't been able to get to the editing, and they've just been stacking up. However, I promise you that next Tuesday, you'll have a fresh episode of The Eagle and Child. I've nearly finished editing it already. In the meantime, just to tide you over until next week, here is an episode of The Lamp Post Listener. You'll have heard me mention it on the podcast before. Two guys, Daniel and Phil, are working chapter by chapter through the Chronicles of Narnia. And in this week's episode, they invited me on to talk about chapter 16 of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I had a real blast hanging out with both these guys. So I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope it'll tide you over until next week when Matt and I will be back and you'll get a fresh episode of The Eagle and Child, when we'll be going further up and further in. Enjoy. Well, welcome back to the Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter 16 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, What Happened About the Statues. Welcome back, Phil. Thanks, man. This is a great chapter. This is a great chapter, and we have brought along a great guest as well, too. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm David, and I'm from the Eagle and Child podcast. Yes, this is our first. Actually, David, you're actually my very first internet friend. So this is a very fun, exciting <laughs> time for me. Uh, that um, so David reached out to us kind of pretty early on in the um, the season after just a couple episodes had been released. I um, mean, I'd already been listening a little bit about a month before the show, our show started started uh, following his podcast, The Eagle and Child, um, which we will definitely talk about at the end of this episode. And we've been going back and forth a lot this season. You've called into the show, David, and now we're like, we've got to get him on before the season ends. So we are so happy to have you here. I'm really excited. It's it's really lovely each week when uh, when I would get an episode in. It's like, great, I get to listen to Narnia. And then I would then send you messages on Twitter with all of my thoughts. Yes. <laughs> You're also, I think, probably the first person to listen to all of our episodes because they release... Uh, on the East Coast here at midnight, and I didn't realize, I guess in my head, I, I thought they were all just being released at midnight wherever they were. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> um, but like Time works Time works differently in Narnia. We've established this. Yes, and I should sure. know better. But you like send me one and like, oh, I'm listening to this before I go to bed. And I'm always like, man, he's going to bed really late. And I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> nine o'clock in San Diego. So... Phil, do we have any corrections or addendums before we get on to this episode? No, I think we're actually done with mistakes. So for the rest of the series, it'll be this perfect. Yeah, I, I think we've gotten really good at this. I, I really don't think... I think if anything, any mistakes this episode will probably be on David's end and not on ours, right? <laughs> I, think I don't know fair, about yes. that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think just you, by having a British accent, you're already smarter than us. Is that correct? Um Basically, I also have glasses, oh, so nice. put those. And I, I used to have a beard, so that was that was that was the trifecta right there. <laughs> so in the last episode, the stone table was broken, Aslan was resurrected, and he, along with Susan and Lucy, headed towards the witch's castle. And that is where we're going to pick up today. And it's an even chapter, which means Phil, you are breaking this down. So if you're ready, I, I'm I'm excited to hear what you've written. All right, here we go. Lucy and Susan watch as Aslan bounds up to each of the animal statues in the witch's lair and breathes on them. Soon the statues begin to glow and return to life. First a lion, then centaurs, unicorns, foxes, dogs, and a giant. 
Aslan asks each of the revived creatures to go around looking for anyone else that needs saving. One of them is Mr. Tumnus, and once he and Lucy are reunited, dancing ensues. To escape, Aslan roars a request at the giant, who makes quick work of the gate by smashing it to pieces. Aslan organizes everyone, and once they are corralled, they set off in search of the battle. Soon they find Peter sparring with the witch, and a war raging around them. Aslan jumps on the witch, the army gives a cheer, and hope is restored. Very nice. Although I have to say, you didn't use the word rumble buffin in there at all, did you? I did not. <laughs> How did you not the include bit... the word, the name rumble buffin, the best word in this entire book? I wanted to save it for later, and you just oh. made that plan backfire. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh... That is a great name. Well, I was actually disappointed that you listed all the animals, but not the kangaroo. <laughs> I, there are, I there are kangaroos the kangaroo. in Narnia. This is important. <laughs> I saw the kangaroo on a second read, believe it or not. It's at the very bottom of the page. And I, <laughs> I like it's a, it's a poor kangaroo, too. That's the best part. Yeah, it's, it's a all kinds. It literally is a zoo inside this castle, but we're not there yet. My first question to y'all is what really stands out um, as you've kind of, you know, worked through this chapter, what's kind of the first thing that stands out to you before we do like a deep dive into the text? For me, it's this entire idea of Aslan breathing upon these statues and bringing them back to life. Because at the moment, Matt and I, we're reading through mere Christianity. And at the start of book four, Lewis actually describes the world as a sculptor's shop. He says that we're statues and that there's a rumor going around the shop that someday some of us are going to come to life. And he spends the rest of that book talking about how in Christianity we're tin soldiers who come to life, who are turned into flesh. And in this book, Lewis gives us a really vivid picture of what that looks like. That's yeah. awesome. I was just thinking, you guys just covered that just a couple of weeks ago, and I was wondering if you were going to bring up that connection, because I think it's very, it's definitely done on purpose here. Oh, and it's biblical. You can't read this and not think of Ezekiel, where God speaks for his prophet and says to the people that, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out this heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. That's good. What about you, Phil? Well, I love that same part, and I really, really enjoyed the way he described it. He says, I expect you've seen someone putting a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And then he talks about how a tiny streak of flame will kind of creep along the edge of the newspaper, and then it'll spread and become much larger than that. Uh, and that, go ahead. And that was a really evocative image for me because when I was growing up in England, on Saturday nights during the winter, my dad would always light a fire in the living room, and I would always see him coaxing this tiny little flame shooting across the. It was usually newspaper he used as kindling, and transforming this thing into a roaring fire. Yeah, and for me, it was every time it snowed or it got a little bit colder, um, my dad would light the fire too, and it would look like nothing had happened. And then all of a sudden, you would see, like, kind of in the background, the flames start to spread a little bit, and then a few minutes later, it's a roaring fire, and just that image really um, hit home for me. And it ties in with something that you guys have discussed before, which was the question is, where is the Holy Spirit in Narnia? If if Aslan is Jesus, you know, the emperor beyond the sea is the father, who is the Holy Spirit? And one of, one of your listeners phoned in or wrote in and said, that, what about the breath of Aslan? And that's what we see here. I mean, if you are looking for a parallel passage in the Bible, this is Pentecost. You know, we have breath, we have wind, and we now have fi flame and fire. I, th I think that's also where we need to start with our, our read through here, because I, want, I already had highlighted that entire paragraph where Lewis describes this image, because it is, like you said, David, it's so evocative, and it's, I'm just going to read it because it's so good. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire, and for a second nothing seems to have happened, and then you notice a teeny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For the second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then the tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, 
and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. And I'll stop right there. I could go on forever, but that's, wow. Isn't that delightful? He's become basically a puppy jumping up to lick Aslan's face. I love it also. It just shows the power of Aslan as well, too. And we're going to get this later in the chapter. But, like, this, again, this lion who who is a lion just seems like a little, like, kitty cat, you know, compared to <laughs> the great lion, right? Um, I wanted to talk about what happens next because after that, Aslan goes around and does this all over to all of the different animals. You know, that's where we get, like, I think this is where we get the kangaroo, we get the centaurs, the unicorns. I mean, all these different kind of things. But in that next paragraph, I want to read a sentence and then ask you all a question. This is just literally just kind of going on into the very next paragraph. Of course the children's eyes turned to follow the lion, but the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him. And that him right there is italicized. So what do we make of this right here? I'm assuming they're talking about they forgot about the, not Aslan, but the other lion, right? That's how I would interpret it. Yes. Why do you think it's italicized though? I think it's because a lion is something incredible and awe-inspiring, even if that lion isn't Aslan. But even in comparison to that, they've now seen something that's even more amazing, even more beautiful, even more awe-inspiring. Is that is that kind of your thoughts too, Phil? Yeah, I would, the the first read I was thinking how they kind of um, put the word Lord in all capitals in the in the Bible, but I'm more convinced of what you guys just said. Oh, so you were thinking they meant they meant Aslan here as the him? Yeah, but that doesn't really make sense. That was just my first reaction. I can kind of see where like when you read like after the Bible and you used to well, if it's a pronoun that's like got some kind of special like way of presenting it, we always like start to think right of like God or something else. I can I can <laughs> definitely make that connection. I think it's, if I'm if I'm typing a message to someone and I want to emphasize something now because you know everything's in um like for me a lot of communication happens via text message. You can't really put things in italics. Um but putting Putting it in all caps would do a similar thing if you read it. It would be different than wonderful that they soon forgot about him or they forgot about him. Mm-hmm. Meaning like instead of like like that thing we just talked about, like there's something much more important coming up. So the next thing that happens after all these animals are going about is we get maybe my favorite character in this entire book. And that's the giant rumble buffin is... Unf- I almost said unfrozen. Uns- what, 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 what verbiage do we want to use here? De-stoned. De-stoned. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and it's, it's a really, really funny line um, where, what, what does uh, Lucy say? Lucy's like, I mean, is it safe? Is and it quite safe? <laughs> Lucy that's, looked and that's saw Susan. that. Oh, it's Susan. You're right. Is it safe? And Lucy looked and saw that Aslan had just breathed on the feet of the stone giant. <laughs> and Aslan says, it's all right. Once the feet are put right, all the rest of him will follow. And Susan's like, that's not exactly what I meant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is just like a, a classic line here. And I, I love the fact that um, here in this chapter, you know, I've, I've pointed out a lot how here in the last third of this book, each chapter has really had a very different tone. Right, like we went through like a lot of like tension, then like despair, and then like like absolute hope once Aslan's resurrected. And this one, I feel like, is just if I had to sum it up in one word, it's joy. Right, like the battle was in a lot of ways already been won. Aslan has defeated death. Like it actually is more like the climax happened a chapter ago, and here is just kind of like, oh, well, we still need to kind of you know finish out these other story elements, but. You know, even when we're awaking a giant, it's like, wait, is this safe? And it's like, no, we don't have to worry about anything anymore. Aslan's come back from, you know, come back to life. And as I was reading this chapter in preparation for talking to you guys, I thought about this particular event and why it was included. Because if you watch the latest movie, Giant Rumble Buffin, he's there, but the, the, the entire him coming back to life and how they exit the witch's castle, none of that's included. And I was thinking, why did Lewis think that this was so important? And I reached the same conclusion you did. It was an episode of joy. 
-hmm. Aslan has has defeated the 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 deep magic. And I think that's one of the big differences, um, and we'll definitely talk about this when we kind of do one of our hiatus episodes and we look at the the Disney movie. The that the the film is very much like the climax is the battle, and you know we're gonna get to this just at the end of this chapter. The battle is like a paragraph or two, but in in the movie the climax is that battle. And so it's like, oh, like kind of sitting around joking with this, you know, giant right before we have to go to the battle would seem almost like we'd be undermining our big dramatic moment with like a, just this little scene of humor. Exactly. But they needed to make another Lord of the Rings movie. So they took it in that direction. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, I cannot wait until we unpack uh, the, the Disney movie. I have a lot of things to say. <laughs> so do we want to talk about Rumble Buffin? Well, I have this dream of naming my first child Rumble Buffin. If nice. the future Mrs. This Bates is, is out there, this is something you might have to deal with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually loved Lewis's line when he says, you rarely see giants in England anymore. And as someone who grew up in England, I can attest to that. Yeah, oh, you very, very, very rarely ever see them. And, but the, the and not only that, but giants beaming. I love how it's like you, the reason you don't see them is, you don't see them beaming is, you haven't seen them very often at all. Exactly. Also, the, the the imagery of like a crowd of creatures trying to explain to a giant that he was just unstoned or unfrozen <laughs> from being in a stone state, and then him not hearing and asking them to repeat it, and then like jumping up and down to explain it, just cracks me up. It that's one of my favorite parts of this chapter. For me, one of the other things that this little incident shows us is a theme throughout the chapter of participation. Everything that Aslan does, he invites the other Narnians to join in. So he's the one that's bringing them back to life, but he sends them to go and look into the house, to open yeah. the windows, to open the doors. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with actually trying to exit the witch's castle. Aslan doesn't need the giant's help. He could just roar and the walls would fall down, I'm sure. But he still invites the giant to be part of the battle in the same way that the sons of Adams and daughters of Eve, they're super important to the story, but ultimately the victory is Aslan's. Right, and you can see the impact that it has on the children, but also the creatures. The lion is so excited to be included um, as one of the lions, and the giant is obviously happy to help with the gate. And to go back to your point, David, too, I mean, it's a pretty... It's almost like a cliche thing, but I, I've, I've started to think as I've gotten older, like when we relate things to like biblical truth, it's not really cliche because it's true, but like this is, this is what God does with us, right? He doesn't need us to carry out like his plans and like to, to go. I think about just even like the Great Commission and all these other things. Like God invites us into these places in the same way. Like we are invited to participate along with him. But the great work is ultimately his. Absolutely. At the, at the feeding of the multitudes, it's Jesus who is multiplying loaves and fishes, but he then invites the apostles to help with the distribution. They are still the ones giving this miraculous bread to the people. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good connection, too. Do, what do we and, think about Pauline Baines' illustration of Rumble Buff in here? The silence is deafening. Well, that's up to, that's up to you guys because I don't have a picture of Rumble Buffin. I just checked. I'm going to put, put my PayPal in the show notes so people can send me a copy with illustrations. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really like his haircut. Uh, and he does look a little weird. So I'm assuming this is how she's trying to communicate the fact that he's kind of ugly and that giants are kind of ugly. Uh, but yeah, a little weird. And Phil, I know this is really bad podcasting, but I have a, I have a picture for you to look at right here of of Rumble Buffin, just so we can get your thoughts. Can you see that? Okay, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I kind of I pictured him about seven times that size. Yeah, and also just he looks like very gentle, and he's not supposed to be gentle because I you know, I was reading here again in uh, the Companion to Narnia, and I wanted to read what the and again, this is not C.S. Lewis writing. This is Paul Ford. I wanted to read this uh, entry, and then I want us to think about the way that Rumble Buffin is presented in the the book, you know, in chapter sixteen, and then and then kind of compare it to this illustration. Not that I'm trying to to rag on Pauline Baines because her work is incredible, but it just it's hard for me to picture that giant that we see in the book. So here's what just what the entry for giants says: It's a race of tall beings that appears in virtually all world mytholo mythologies. 
Giants are one of the nine classes of Narnian creatures as related by Dr. Cornelius. Phil doesn't know who that is, but you'll find out soon. In Narnia, there are roughly two types of giants, and this is the best part. The two types, good and bad. Nice and simple. <laughs> uh, both types use clubs as weapons and wear knee-high spiked boots. The bad giants live generally in the north and are hostile and even murderous towards human, dwarfs, and talking beasts. And then he kind of goes in and names some of those, which I won't get into. Um, and he talks more about the good giants. But as he's describing kind of what they look like and this, um, you know, the weapons they use and stuff, I just have a hard time seeing that picture. <laughs> yeah, he certainly does look far softer. You can't quite imagine him in pitched battle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, I will say of all of the illustrations, that's really the one, the only one that I'm really, like, having a hard time buying in. I mean, Pauline Baines has done a great job illustrating these these books. Well, speaking of her, one of the things I thought when I was reading this was, again, another conversation that you guys have already had, is Aslan on four paws or two? Oh. Because when he when he calls up to the lion, we're told that he goes onto his hind legs. Yes. And he claps his paws together as though they're hands. <laughs> I had that here uh, as one of my notes that we have final proof that Aslan uses all four legs. And I think this kind of shows that, which is what the, the argument I've been making all season long, and now here at the end of the season, we're finally relieving some of this tension. Uh, <laughs> Pauline Baines's work is not canonical to this story. Like it is not like what she is showing us is not necessarily what is happening or what our characters look like. So uh, it's more like there's supplemental works to kind of help us envision it, but we don't have to go, oh, this is exactly what it looks like. It's a supposal. Ah. I was thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> yes, it's an imaginative supposal. <laughs> All right, so what what else is sticking out to y'all as we kind of go through this castle? Anything else with Rumble Buffin, or do we want to move on? I had one other thing. Uh, when you guys were doing the episode where Edmund first comes to the castle, yeah. there was a question as to whether or not this courtyard was a site of execution, like a firing squad. Uh-huh. But the way that Rumblebuffin responds when he's woken up, when he's brought back to life, suggests that there was a ba pitch battle going on at the time. So, to me, that suggests that either the Narnians were assaulting the witch's castle, or perhaps this was the site of her final victory, and then she built a castle on it. Mm. Oh, wow. That that is a really the second thing you said is really interesting because I was thinking how in the world did they get a stone giant into the castle? <laughs> the, logis yeah. the logistics of that is just so baffling. You just trying to imagine them like, <laughs> like all the wolves and if like you could just like set stuff, this way, sir. Okay, like dip your head in. Okay, now stand still, and then they turn into stone. But that doesn't match up with the dialogue. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you've already lost. Can you just stand there so we can make you stone? Can you like get a kind of cool menacing picture so we can take you know photographs uh, <laughs> for all, all the visitors? Or the Queen and, and Morgrim talking about, oh, do you think we should go in that corner or this corner? You know, trying to feng shui the castle. I wanted I would, to get natural north light. I, um, I would love to see, there's a couple great like CBS procedural sitcoms that we could take out of this chapter. And that does kind of go back to like the joyful tone of this old chapter. I want to see, um, I, I want to see the, the White Witch and Malgrim as interior decorators <laughs> trying to kind of like, and their job is like they have all these stone statues and what they're trying to do is get rid of them and like try to convince people that they need them in their homes. We could also see uh, Rumblebuffin and, and Lucy as uh, like roommates. I think that would be a really good show, especially after he picks her up and tries to use her as a, a handkerchief, right? <laughs> well, the other one I actually thought of this week was what if Mrs. McCready followed the children into Narnia? Oh, man. And so she, she is oh, having her own adventure while all of this is going on. Hey, can we copyright that right now so no one can steal that idea? Because that's a really good one. <laughs> uh, also, to point out here, in some of these exchanges, we hear... Uh, oh, by the way, Mr. Tumnus comes back, which is great. I love when he and Lucy dance together. That's just such an image of joy uh, to go I love along with the theme of the chapter. I loved your summary, dancing ensues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the so it's kind of weird because he comes back so quickly and it's such like a fast paced uh, nature to the chapter because Lucy goes, Aslan, Aslan, I found Mr. Thomas. Oh, do come quick. And then a moment later, Lucy and the little fawn were holding each other by the by both hands and dancing round and round for joy. Like we don't we even like skip 
over all of the bringing him back to life and destoning him, and he just goes straight to their dancing and the joy part. Yeah, and there's no dialogue. Like, Mr. Tumnus was a yeah. key character that kind of introduces to Narnia, gave us a lot of exposition, and now nothing. One of the other exchanges that I really, really enjoy is, um, so after um, Rumblebuffin has picked up Lucy, trying to pick up the um, the handkerchief, he puts her back down, and Lucy says, what a nice giant he is, said Lucy to Mr. Tumnus. Oh, yes, replied the fawn. All the Buffins always were, one of the most respected of all the giant families in Narnia. Not very clever, perhaps, I never knew a giant that was, but an old family, with traditions, you know. And he'd been, had he been the other sort, she'd never have turned him into stone. Which is, the best part of this is that we now know that Rumblebuffin's real name is Rumble? Is that... <laughs> it has to be, right? Because his surname is Buffin. Yeah, I think you're right. Or, yeah, or, or maybe giant names work differently. So ah, that you, okay. you, get a, you automatically get a suffix on your name and you just get to choose the first part of it. Oh man, that would have been cool. I wish we did that. Or you can move to Russia. <laughs> Is that how it works over there? Yeah, in Russia, if you get married, your wife will have your last name, but it's like a variation of your last name where the N changes. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty cool. But if you're a Russian and you get married here, then it doesn't really change. Oh, okay. If a, like a Russian person marries a, a non-Russian woman here. Interesting. How do you know that? I just learned <laughs> that <laughs> this week. I don't know if you I trust your information on Russia right now. Uh, you, you learn all kinds of things on this podcast. I'm taking that one as gospel. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. No one, no one looked that up. I promise you, feels right. And true. we said no more mistakes, so we can't, true. we can't fix it. It's not, not going to be corrected. <laughs> uh, so, and again, like I think, like I, I just want to keep harping on the fact that, like, this chapter is so much fun, and where we've been the last couple of chapters have been so tense and so dramatic, and we literally have none of that. Like, even the idea of wait, we've got to break down the walls because we're all stuck in the castle. How are we going to get out? Like the second that question is asked, it's, oh, let's just get the giant to do it. And he does it. Like it's not even a problem at all, right? Right. And that's my favorite type of story, actually. Like even though it's not technically a story because there's no conflict, there's no resolution. It's just like, <laughs> there's like, oh, this minor thing or this big thing that turned out to be a minor thing and it's taken care of right away. I realized as a child, I don't really like conflict. I just want a story about people. <laughs> Without you, like them doing anything wrong and then having to be redeemed. So what, you like what, harmony. Yeah. <laughs> saying, what, kind point, of, what kind of stories are you talking? I'm trying to think of a story that doesn't have conflict. Have you seen the movie Chef? No. With oh, John the one Favre? with John uh, Favreau. Favreau. No, I haven't seen it. That movie has no plot. And you love it. <laughs> and I love it. It's about a chef and he like cooks some food. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but he gets back together with his ex-wife. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> we just lost like 100 listeners when you did that. <laughs> They're never going to come back. You can beep it out. You, okay, there we go. <laughs> but the thing is, that's not the kind of story that Lewis, and particularly Tolkien, that, that's not the kind of story that they liked. Tolkien coined the phrase, I think, you catastrophe, the idea of a good catastrophe, the yeah. idea that everything is as dark and as bleak as it can possibly be, and then at the last minute, it's saved. You know, the cavalry come charging in, Gandalf arrives, Aslan's raised from the dead. He brings all these statues to life. They swarm the battle. That was what he enjoyed. Yeah. And I love what's so different about this is, like, Aslan actually is gone. Like, you kind of think, at least for a moment, that it's over. Like, it, it cannot get any worse than that. It's not like he went away and you're not sure if he's dead or not. He definitely died. One of the things I've really enjoyed by our kind of like episodic jump through this series as I've been picking up so much more. I know I've said this so many times already, but I've really picked up so much more on the different tones of the book and the fact that, um, that we really can see how Lewis's tone shifts throughout the book. And that's where we can kind of pinpoint. We're like, oh, this is the climax. This is kind of, you know, the rising action and all these other different things. And it's just so much fun from here on out. I mean, this is this is a great time to have a guest like David on the show because we're all just having fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you invited me to possibly come to an earlier episode, and I looked at all of those chapters like, no, those are all sad. I don't yeah. want to come to those. <laughs> I think the other one we gave you was that we one of the other ones we offered was like the Triumph of the Witch, and I think that's the only episode of the last couple of ones that haven't had a guest because no one wanted to do that one. <laughs> it was like, no, I don't want my episode to be the one that Aslan dies in. <laughs> Exactly. I want to talk about happy things. 
So after we get past this conversation about Rumble Buffin and Mr. Tumnus, we have the part where Aslan claps his hands together, which seems really odd, right? <laughs> He's like, what does that look like, you know? It's like when you're doing a push-up and you're on all fours, <laughs> and then you jump yeah. up and clap them together and then put them back down. But then Aslan says, our day's work is not o- yet over. And if the witch is to be finally defeated before bedtime, we must find the battle at once. And again, like, there is no tension here at all. He's literally said, oh, we're going to defeat her before bedtime tonight and move <laughs> on. Uh, so that happens, and he, they start rounding up all the animals. And we get a very, very happy line. So let me read this part of the chapter. The most pleased of the lot was the other lion who kept running around everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but really in order to say to everyone he met, Did you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. That's what I like about Aslan. No side, no standoffishness. Us lions. That meant him and me. At least he went on saying this till Aslan had loaded him up with three dwarfs, one dryad, two rabbits, and a hedgehog. That steadied him a bit. (laughs) (laughs) And then a big sheepdog steps in and does the actual work. Yeah. So what do we make of this little exchange where Aslan, you know, he's getting all the people together. He's like, oh, us lions will kind of be in the front. What do we make of this with him kind of including the other lion with him? Well, I think there is some truth to what the uh, what the other lion is saying, that, uh, that Aslan is, is very open to having other people with him. Yeah. Uh, and it would make sense that as they're rushing off to battle, you put animals like lions at the front rather than hedgehogs or badgers. Why are the hedgehogs going? <laughs> Have you ever stepped on a hedgehog? It really hurts. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of like the landmines of the, the Narnia. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we have like a couple of other small things too that are going, right? Like <laughs> a couple of rabbits. Yeah. But, the... <laughs> Maybe they'll but also, reproduce to death. <laughs> but also remember, these are Narnian animals. Ah. And if you have seen other books, uh, they they describe them as being larger than their than the regular types of animals that we have in our world. That's very true. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, that's a good point. Phil's gonna be really excited when we get there. I'm really disappointed that we've never seen this in any of the adaptations. We've never seen the overly energetic lion who's just excited to be part of the battle. I think you're right. Maybe we'll see it in the the Netflix series coming up. Oh, the rumored Netflix series. That's right. If that is true, yes. But again, I think that speaks to the difference between somebody trying to have a fast-paced action movie and the more leisurely paced, episodic kind of writing that Lewis had. Yeah, absolutely. And And one's characterized by joy. And that's that's what I think all of this is about. The celebration has already begun. That's right. Even before the battle's won. Because they're that sure. Of all the chapters we've read so far, would you all say this is one of the ones that has Lewis's voice the most prominent? That's how oh, I feel, but y'all, do y'all kind of hear his voice more than we usually do? I think he certainly comments a bit more in this chapter. Yes. And I think, I think that's probably what you're picking up on. I think you're right, yeah, because I just like, I, you know, he's doing a lot more like asides to us as the audience and just kind of sharing things. And it feels like Lewis as an author is just having a, a ball with this like he's just having a great time writing this um and again he doesn't have to kind of focus on oh my goodness is everything going to be okay because as readers we're already like bought into the fact that Aslan's like look we're doing this before bedtime tonight so I mean it's over right (laughs) it just seems like he's really enjoying this as a writer completely agree as a in terms of writing one of the best things he does here is he has so many different people and creatures with dialogue and I was looking for more examples of where C.S. Lewis is just doing an aside, and it's a lot of dialogue, actually. So after they leave this area, you know, they, they run across pretty much all of Narnia. If we're to believe the map, we're not going to get into this. I've talked about it enough. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy this bit when you start ranting and getting frustrated. This anyway, makes, guys, on. this makes no sense, right? Like, <laughs> how are, maybe because, let's just say maybe Aslan's doing something where maybe they're doing like a wrinkle in time kind of thing and they're putting the ant, like a tesseract, right? And they're, Aslan is somehow magically kind of pushing Narnia closer together to get there because it, it really doesn't seem to make sense how they're getting there and just you know, a couple of hours, but that's not a heather under there. I'll, I'll move on. <laughs> um, so they Let do go, eventually, man. they get to this battle. Uh, and Phil, do you want to read what happens when they get there? Sure. 
This part is right after Lucy hears something. Then they came out of the narrow valley, and at once she saw the reason. There stood Peter and Edmund, and all the rest of Aslan's army, fighting desperately against the crowd of horrible creatures whom she had seen last night. Only now, in the daylight, they looked even stranger and more evil and more deformed. There also seemed to be far more of them. Peter's army, which had their backs to her, looked terribly few. And there were statues dotted all over the battlefield, so apparently the witch had been using her wand. But she did not seem to be using it now. She was fighting with her stone knife. It was Peter she was fighting, both of them going at it so hard that Lucy could hardly make out what was happening. She only saw the stone knife and Peter's sword flashing so quickly that they looked like three knives and three swords. That pair were in the center. On each side, the line stretched out. Horrible things were happening wherever she looked. Wow. So yeah, that is a pretty intense description. And, but like that, it's pretty much over, right? So like there's one more paragraph. Aslan eats the witch and then it's all (laughs) over, right? Like, I mean, that's it. Like that was the big battle at the end. It seems really anticlimactic, right? It does a little, yes. One of the things I remember reading um, is, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure actually on our next episode, Brian from Narnia Web will be here, uh, so he can tell me if I'm wrong on, on this. But I remember reading in an interview uh, with the director of the Disney movie that he had thought that Lewis had done much more describing the battle between the Narnians and the witch's army um, just because of how descriptive and how well-written this part of the chapter was, that in his mind he could imagine so much more than was actually on the page. Do you all feel like that's the case when you're reading this? Absolutely. Every time I come to this, and I'm also going to say in The Hobbit, in the recounting of the Battle of Five Armies, it's yeah. what, a page, a two, two pages, but there's so much going on in my head that I, 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 I blow it up much larger. Almost three movies worth? <laughs> no. Definitely not. Oh, maybe man. maybe we... maybe one and a half. <laughs> maybe one and a half. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, do you feel that same way, Phil? I this happened so fast because it is just like that one paragraph that it seemed like it was over really quickly. But on the other hand, to me, things were over when Aslan came back to life. Like and if what... he's if he's able to do that, that's when things are really over. And now it's just kind of not really going through the motions, but he just does what has to be done. And also the brevity creates this other image in your head just the, of Aslan and his new troops just sweeping through and just knocking everything out of the way. That there's just being a clean sweep. That it, it's it's now definitely over. There's not even a chance. This this force is now unstoppable. Right. And I've I've seen that in other um, films, other books too, where. If you want to show that people are evenly matched, you kind of have a battle go on for a while. But then there's a point where one character becomes so powerful that things just happen way faster than anyone would expect. And it's really cool to see, especially in a, a cinematic setting where it just it's over before it begins. And that's kind of what we have here. I think of Gandalf and the Rohirrim kind of coming down at in the Two Towers uh, in the movie version of Gandalf and the Rohirrim coming down that giant hill into Helm's Deep and just literally slaughtering uh, Saruman's Urukai, right? Like, that's what I kind of think of. as like they're just literally running in there and just taking them out. Cutting through them like butter. Yeah. And I know we kind of said some bad stuff. I feel bad. I kind of feel bad now that we 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 made fun of Pauline Baines's uh, picture Rumble Buffin. Uh, here at the end of the chapter, there are two incredible illustrations of this battle, and I'm looking at them in like full color right now. And I'm gonna try to find links to all the illustrations we've talked about, by the way, and put them in the the show notes. I but listeners, if you haven't seen these, they are incredible. I know Phil probably hasn't seen them. They're incredible. My favorite part on the right hand on the on the far right, you've got a dragon. And yes. it looks to be battling what looks to be a squirrel. <laughs> it does. It's incredible. So now we know what the squirrels are doing. Maybe there's a rabbit in there somewhere too. <laughs> yeah, Phil, I'll have to show you those later. They're really, really cool. I'm, I'm picturing it in my head very vividly, but that would be great. Thank you. And one last thing that's not a new thing, but something C.S. Lewis is writing again uh, as we, you know, here at the, the, at the end of all things. Oh, wait, no, wrong book. Um, <laughs> is... As the witch is getting her, uh, you know, 
eaten by the lion, pretty much. It says that Lucy sees an expression of terror and amazement. And I love that. Again, like, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Right? And this, and it's almost like how um, in Harry Potter... Oh, and we have uh, a guest from across the pond. So in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's <laughs> Stone, when Ollivander says about, like, Voldemort that he did both great and terrible things, and it's kind of this juxtaposition of these two things that seem to be mutually exclusive, but yet they're not in these comparisons. Hmm. Well, two things on that. One, yeah. I'm going to disappoint you. I haven't read any of the Harry Potter books. Oh, wow. <laughs> but your description there, it, the biblical version of this is when we talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh-huh, it, exactly. Fear, fear encompasses so much more than just being scared of somebody. It's it, Awe is a far, far closer rendering the, uh, the, the enormity, the, the, sh the shock that, and the overwhelming of the senses when encountering something so much greater, so much more powerful than yourself. That's so good. It is, yeah. So before we wrap this up, because we're pretty much here at the end, is there anything else you guys want to talk about in this chapter? I think we got it all. Kangaroos and all. So in the final chapter of this book, chapter 17, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe will conclude with the hunting of the white stag. So that's what we'll pick up with our next episode. But before we go, we have uh, David obviously here, and we have a couple of questions for you, David. Go ahead. So one of the things we've been asking guests on the show, on the show is, what was your first exposure to the Chronicles of Narnia? Is this something you grew up with or something that kind of came later in life? Uh, no, I grew up with Narnia. The Chronicles are probably some of my earliest memories because wow. my, mo my mother would use them as bribery in order to get me to go to bed. <laughs> and from a very early age, I developed a great love of Narnia. One of my uh, earliest toys was this plastic push-along lion who was inevitably called Aslan. Of course. I actually put up a picture on my Twitter account. It, it's, I look kind of adorable. I look very sweet. Very <laughs> Uh, but I picked up the Chronicles again in my mid-twenties. I've got a godson, Johnny, and I knew his parents from church, and they asked me to babysit their kids once a week for, I think it was a month or two. And I hadn't hung out with small children a whole lot, so I just used the same ploy that my mother did. If you brush your teeth, if you're in bed on time, then you get a chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I enjoyed reading them so much that when that time of babysitting was over, I went out, bought a complete set of the Chronicles, and read them from cover to cover. And from there, I got into Lewis's other works, Mere Christianity, Surprised by Joy, all that stuff. So Narnia was kind of your entryway into Lewis. Absolutely. We went to, we went to the theater and saw productions. I listened to the audio books, well, audio cassettes, because this was back in the Stone Age. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool because it, I, you know, I've really enjoyed hearing you and Matt talk over on the Eagle and Child, but I didn't realize that um, that these books were kind of your entryway into all of his kind of later apologetic works. Absolutely, and as we saw in today's chapter, you can you can draw the lines very clearly. Rereading the Chronicles of Narnia after you've read something like Mere Christianity, you see the same topics come up, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, you get this beautiful, vivid picture of what this looks like in a story rather than a slightly more abstract, didactic kind of description of morality. That's really cool. I mean, I'm going to be honest. This question is really great to hear from you because all of our guests so far have been friends and family members, and so we already kind of know all the answers. <laughs> it's really cool to hear that, like, that's a really unique story, and I, I'm really, yeah, that's awesome. And I also watched the BBC version when it was broadcast on TV. Oh, you watched like in the oh, late man. 80s, right? Mm-hmm, with the six-foot beavers. Oh, man, that's, <laughs> that's just two episodes away for us. I literally cannot wait. Uh, I'm about to go order it on, on, a, on DVD on Amazon because there's like YouTube versions, but they're really, really... Not, no, we're not watching it on DVD. We're watching it on VHS. Yes. Do you have a VHS player, though? We're going to get it from my church library back home. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're going to have to do it from. That's Along right. with the VCR. <laughs> That was something I always checked out. Uh, I think Emily talked about it when we were on, or when we were on, when she was on the show. Um, that like my mom, like we would always go to the either church library or public library and check out the the versions. But I really only remember the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't really remember the other three as well. They, I, for as much stick as they get, they're actually pretty good, and and they were very faithful to the book by and large, where they could yeah. be. Mm -hmm. We um. 
you know, I, I talk about how I off, I read this book every year with my students. And at the end of the unit, we, we go ahead and we watch the Disney version. Um, there was one year where we had uh, something came up and we had to, I think we had to eat lunch in our classroom or something. And they asked if we could, they could watch the movie. And I was like, no, we haven't finished the book yet, but we could watch the first 30 minutes, like the first episode of a miniseries that came out, you know, when, when I was younger. <laughs> and so we watched it and they were not having it. Like they were just like, this is absolutely awful. Uh, we got to the part where um, they, they thought Mr. Thomas looked really, really creepy. And we eventually did make it, I think, further into the second episode with the beavers and they were completely gone. Like I could not get them to, to buy in at all after that. <laughs> Well, I, I love the fact that you read this to your students yeah. uh, each year because actually last night we had a movie night, our C.S. Lewis book club, uh-huh. and we have some young people. We've got uh, An- Anastasia. She's eight years old, and she and her siblings came with their faces painted like lions. Oh, that's awesome. And oh, wow. watching the movie with them and talking about Narnia after, afterwards with them was just wonderful. And my, and my niece is also at an age where she can now start consuming this stuff, so not the last time, but the time before when I went back to England, I read her the first few chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But because I then had to come back to the States and you know get back to work, what I did is I recorded the rest of it onto MP3 and then sent them to her. Oh, just wow. awesome. Because so she will then forever associate something amazing with Uncle David. <laughs> That's great, dude. Genius. I love that. So um, now that we know kind of your passion for these books, which one is wait actually no i have another question you said you consumed all of the books kind of uh, in your mid 20s did you read them in publication or chronological order <laughs> this this is a, a very divisive question i read them in the most sensible order which is not chronological okay and and my my main argument for that is actually comes from this book where lewis says when they when the name of aslan is first mentioned uh-huh. he says that those children didn't know who aslan was no more than you do that's not possible if you've read The Magician's Nephew first. It's not. Yeah. I am interested if this rumored Netflix series comes to fr- fruition, I would be maybe interested in them adapting them in chronological order because you can kind of take out all those, you know, asides to the audience and stuff. Uh, I, but- I agree. I, I listened to the Narnia Web podcast and I was oh, yeah. initially very resistant. But by the end, they had convinced me. I, I actually announced it to my friends. I am okay if they do it in chronological <laughs> order. I've thought yeah. long and hard about this, and for the sake of a miniseries and to really get it going and making people watch it, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I think I would be okay with it. I actually think I want that. I think I prefer that as opposed to a uh, publication order because we've already seen some of that. And my biggest fear is that we're going to get three series or three seasons or we're just going to get to like maybe the silver chair and stop again and we'll never see the last three books adapted and i, yep. I want to make sure i really want to see the last battle on screen that will be amazing yeah and right, very so, difficult to portray <laughs> very very i don't know if it'll be good maybe i'll regret wanting to see it once we do we do get one uh so before we go though what is your favorite book in this series and tell us a little bit about why when I was a child, my favorite was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I loved its episodic uh, progress. You know, you, they come to this island and they have these adventures. They come to this island and these adventures. So it's basically like Star Trek in Narnia. Yeah. But, and, and in particular, I loved Eustace and the things that happened to him. I was about to say too much, and then I Thank remembered you. not Thank all of you. us have read not this. not spoiling Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but when I reread them as an adult, the real surprise for me was The Horse and His Boy. I loved that, and it was probably my least favorite as a child. Mm-hmm. I've thought about it. I think it might have been just because there's uh, a girl in it and <laughs> girls are stinky. Yeah, when you're a kid. When you're a kid. When you're a kid, yes. Yeah. When you're a kid. Save your emails. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're very, very nice now. Uh, but coming to that one as an adult, I, I, I just loved the journey and also how desperate it gets towards the end of their journey. And you, you feel like the characters are giving everything and that they might actually possibly lose. You know, it's, it's back to this idea of eucatastrophe. I think it just really ratchets up. Plus, also, in that book, you get to see how Aslan has been involved throughout the journey. Mm-hmm. And just from you know, walking the Christian journey, 
How many times do you look back on your life and you suddenly see God's fingerprints over a whole load of things that you never even thought of at the time? Mm. Yeah. I'm really excited that you said that because The Horse's Boy is the only book I actually have not read as an adult, and I've been holding on to it and really playing with the idea of maybe <laughs> both Phil and I reading it through for the first time as adults because both you and Sarah Jane have now shared that that's your favorite, and it makes me so excited when we eventually get there. That's a good one. Yeah. All right, well, David, tell us a little bit about where listeners can find you if they've enjoyed listening to you so far in this episode. Certainly. If you want more of this delightful accent, uh, go to wherever you get your podcasts and type in The Eagle and Child, and you'll find the main podcast that I do with my co-host, Matt. He and I met a little over a year ago at a party, and the subject came around to C.S. Lewis, as it does. And we discovered that we both loved Lewis, and so we started a book club here in San Diego. And we'd had a couple of meetings, and at the end of it, I was saying to him, I was like, I still have so much more to say. (laughs) And we'd also had people from outside of San Diego say that they wanted to participate in our book club in some way when I posted about it on Facebook. And so we decided, let's just start a podcast. So now, every Tuesday morning, because that was the time when Lewis met the other Inklings at the Eagle and Child, his local pub, uh, every Tuesday morning we release an episode and we talk through a chapter of Lewis's work. For the past year, we've been working through mere Christianity, and we are nearly at the end. (laughs) And uh, next month, we're going to be starting probably my favorite book of Lewis's, and that's The Great Divorce. Oh, oh that's exciting. I can, this yeah. is like, you heard it first here on the Lamp Post Listener. Cause I don't, have you guys said that on the show before? <laughs> I think we've hinted that we probably will, but I can categorically say that's definitely what we're going to do next. Oh, Excellent. right. That's exciting to hear. Yeah. And I will put, listeners, I'll put, I know we've, we've linked to uh, David and Matt's work before, but I'll make sure that this episode also has a link to their work. And we'll post a link to that Narnia Web episode where they talked about the uh, rebooted Netflix series as well, too. Yeah, those of you who are diehard publication order only people, give it a chance. Listen to their arguments. I think it does make sense. Yeah. All right, David, any last words before we go? No, I had a blast. This was amazing. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, this has been super fun. We can't wait to have you back for next season. Wonderful. And uh, I'll make sure Matt comes. Yes, absolutely. All right, listeners, well, you can follow us into Narnia on our Twitter or Facebook pages. If you have any feedback, you can email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. We love hearing your thoughts and your feedback on the show. We'd also appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts because this helps other listeners find the show and join with us in our read-through. Also, make sure you've subscribed to the show in your favorite podcast app so that you can wake up to a new episode every other Wednesday. Our show's themes were created by Kevin McLeod. You can find more of his work in the links in the episode's description. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we will be back next time for the final chapter, Chapter 17.